I know all of you, like me, went home last night and went on to Google and tried to remember all the names of the artists that we saw last night and then sent it to all your friends, right? No? I did it. I did it last night. Mid-lecture? Well, I uh, certainly um, did not know 98% of the uh, artists that were presented last night, and I found it quite interesting, and it was quite... A, for those of you who were there or not there, it was entitled a roller coaster... How do we call it? Ride through... I don't know. What is Israeli culture? A roller coaster ride through Israeli contemporary culture. So if you went there and you were overwhelmed by images and... Uh, people and songs and names, that was really the purpose of the program. It was, it was advertised in the headlines. Um, so it worked. And on roller coasters, sometimes you get nauseous, sometimes you get dizzy, but many of you had your hands up and were screaming for joy. I saw that. We slow down a bit. We focus today and tonight on subtopics within the general theme. Um, our topic for today is Israeli art as a window to Israeli history and collective memory. Is that correct? That's what I have right here. I know, but I tweaked it after yesterday. Yeah, so Shirel just changes things on the fly. She adds new videos as they get released. So uh, apparently it's very close. It's close enough. Um, for those of you who weren't here last night, I'm not going to go through Shirel's bio because it's in the materials, but know that we met with Shirel in 2014, and then in 2017 many of us had the opportunity to travel and do a graffiti art tour in the, Flo in the Florentine in southern Tel Aviv. Um, she is an artist in her own right, but even more impressive, she's an artist who can talk about art and make it make sense. So please join me in welcoming Shirel back to Orange County. That was really fast, thank you. Okay, so um, what we're gonna do today, we're diving into the fine arts world and using it as a way to look at issues within Israeli society. And because, I'll just mention maybe as an overview, because I have we have the lecture now and the one in the evening, I'm basically leaving most of the Palestinian significant other to this evening, and we'll focus in this lecture on contemporary issues within Israeli Jewish society, okay? So I'm kind of splitting it into two. A few small snippets will appear also in this uh, talk we're having, but just so you kind of understand the overview. Um, and we're, we're, we're gonna go back first in order to arrive in the present. Um, have any of you heard of the Betzalel Academy of Art? Perfect. Um, Betzalel or Betzalel, depending. Um, studied there, graduated there. Um, considered the best art program in Israel. I must say there's a competing school, Hamid Rashah. There's like a constant rivalry. Uh, between them, but Betzalel was also the first one to be found in Israel. It was founded in 1906, okay, so way before the foundation of the state. And this is the emblem, and if you look at the emblem, you can see it's the ark with the cherubs on it. And why Betzalel? It's referring basically to the first artist mentioned in the Bible. Betzalel was the, the one that God gave all the instructions to build the Mishkan, the temporary uh, uh, temple that moved with uh, the Israelites through the desert and there's a whole description of all the fabrics and the materials and the dimensions. And Boris Schatz who founded uh, Betzalel, uh, you can see here, this is the only text we have in this presentation, but you see to train people in Jerusalem in crafts, consolidate original Jewish art, support Jewish artists and to find visual expression for the much yearned for a national and spiritual independence that seeks to create a synthesis between European artistic traditions and the Jewish design 
you can see there again Eastern Europe. So very much uh, Eurocentric point of view, which makes sense, that's where he came from. Um, and looking to create, you can see also the word craft, right, and Jewish. Okay, so the combination of all of that is kind of the vision of Betelel. And we're starting here, we're looking at works from the 1920s. Now usually I'll just ask, or very often if I ask, um, when would we say Israeli art begins? What is the starting point, right? What, uh, so we could say 1948, we could say 1920s. We usually mark it at the beginning of uh, the school. That's kind of when we start looking at art and calling it Israeli art. And we're seeing here two typical works from the 1920s. They don't have uh, exact dates. And they also don't have uh, exact names. There, there's no one. There's no one name on it. Basically, Betzalel had a workshop of people creating this silverwork, and they were actually Yemenite artisans uh, who studied silver. They're known for uh, the their uh, silver jewelry and and work, and they created these uh, works, never uh, credited by name, uh, and it was sold as Betzalel kind of uh, uh, artifact. And you can see below a case of, for a Megillah. So we're also seeing something that is very much, today we'd call this crafts and not fine art. Um, and very, very Jewish in that way, right? We also, these days, we'd probably call it Judaica rather than Israeli art. Uh, and we had also things like this, same 1920s, also Betzalel, you can see this box, which could be a box for an etrog uh, or any, any other kind of ritual piece. And what do you have? What's the face there? Herzl. So we have the Jewish Star of David, and we have Herzl face, so this combination of Zionism, uh, Jewish artifacts, and crafts. And I'm skipping a little, it's not exactly four, but let's say 23 and 24, we're looking at an artist called Rouven Rubin, who is, I'd say, the quintessential figure of uh, what's called the Eretz Israel School of Art, the Land of Israel School of Art, artists that were painting at that time. And we're painting from observation, and we're painting the land and what they saw around them. Now, if you look for some of you, those who know a little bit uh, about uh, art, um, you can see it can be connected very easily to the same like styles that were happening at the time, mainly in Paris, Gauguin, Naive style, Matisse, like if you have some of those images in your mind. And the thing is that Israel is an immigrant country at that point. It's not Israel at that point, it's Palestine. And Jews are coming from different places and studying in different places. Uh, Paris at that point is the center of the art world. And uh, they bring the styles with them. And we have many, many different styles in the same way that there are many different people. Another example is Tziona Tajal, uh, the train to Nevetzedek, which you can see here, it's early Cubism. Um, uh, and once again, she was actually, her parents are from Tunis. She was born in Palestine at the time, but she went to study in Paris. After a while in Betelel, she went to study in Paris, came back. And just as a kind of half side note, Tziona Tajal was also the first uh, Israeli representative to the Venice Biennial uh, once uh, the state was... Uh, um, declared in 1948. Uh, Israel joined the Venice Biennial and has been since presenting there, and Siona Tajal was our first uh, representative there. Um, I'm skipping a little forward to a sculpture that is uh, pivotal in Israeli history. Um, and <coughs> if you can see, first of all, uh, does he look Jewish? 
No, right? It looks more Egyptian in a way with the bird on his shoulder. I mean, on the right-hand side, it's easier to see. On the left-hand side, those are images it, as it's presented in the museum, so it can be a little confusing, but he has a bird on his shoulder. Behind his back, he's holding uh, some kind of weapon. Uh, his face looks more Egyptian or Middle Eastern or almost could be South American, but it doesn't look Jewish as we'd imagine it. And if you look, uh, it's kind of up close, uh, you can see he's not circumcised. So very clearly not Jewish. Now, this sculpture, when it was created in, um, in 38, 39, was so provocative, it wasn't exhibited at the time. Why was it so provocative? It was a combination of the sculpture itself and its title, called Nimrod. Now, Yitzhak Danzinger, I'll explain Nimrod in a moment. Yitzhak Danzinger, the artist, belonged to a group of artists that called themselves the Canaanites. And basically saying, we're here in this land not because the word of God, but rather because of our history and the connection to the land pre the Hebrews, right? Knaan, the land of Knaan, and we belong here, and that's kind of why we're here, trying to create a different connection to the place. And the word Nimrod, it's a name uh, of who's considered in the biblical stories or the backstories of the biblical story, the person who led the revolt against God in the Babel Tower, right? We have the Babel Tower trying to reach God, um, and he's considered the figure that led that. And the word uh, in Hebrew, Nimrod, the root is mered, which means revolt. Okay, Nimrod means we will revolt or we will rebel. That's why, by the way, in Israel, if you meet anyone named Nimrod, you know they're from a very secular family, probably kibbutz. You won't find any people uh, with that name with the, in the religious. Uh, society and this was extremely provocative at the time so much so it wasn't exhibited but later became a very important sculpture and kind of marking this this I'd say split almost between Jewish identity and Israeli identity right there's something here that's saying we're Israeli we belong here this is what we're talking about. This, the stone which the sculpture is created from is red uh, sandstone from the area of Jordan. Um, and it's kind of completely pushing aside the Jewish uh, identity. Um, we're looking here at a work by Yohanan Simon, 1948, resting in the kibbutz. And you can see the colors, um, the playfulness. And you can see, I mean, he's more influenced by social realism. If some of you know posters and paintings from the former Soviet Union or on the other side, Diego Rivera, that might strike a chord. And I'm just bringing those examples so you can see that the style varies, but they're kind of looking at their reality and trying to depict it, both what they're seeing and kind of the feelings towards it. And then we have a shift in the uh, uh, 1950s with a group called New Horizons. First of all, we're after the foundation of the state, right? And the art, Israeli art world already has, you know, it's, it's been going for some time. And this group of friends um, say, with all due respect to us portraying the land and painting and all of that, we're artists, we need to be connected with the art world, with the universal art world. And art needs to be about art, not about other things. And if you think of it, a good way to kind of place that, the same time the, the focus or the center of the art world moves from Europe to the United States, and the easiest name to point out to is Jackson Pollock, an abstract expressionism. That's what's happening in the US, which becomes kind of the, the new mecca after Paris for the art world. And you can see here a work by uh, just 
Yosef Zaritsky, he's one, you might have heard the names Zaritsky, Stimatsky, Streichmann, I, I'm just, they're not important, I'm throwing them out in case some of you heard of them. And they start painting abstract, okay? Trying also to figure out what abstract is in Israel, but if you look at this painting, it's very hard to say, oh, I'm seeing this or that, we're not looking at a figure. And we're forced to talk about color, composition, and brush stroke, right? So the painting becomes the field of its own theme, okay? Rather than an illusion of something that is outside of the painting. He still calls this painting Yechiam, which is the kibbutz he lives in, okay? And it's interesting, and in, I'd say in, uh, in Israeli art, the titles and uh, the dates are extremely important. We'll see how they play a role. But you can see it's a painting. They were a very um, influential, and I'd say aggressive group. And we're going to look at the next artist that was at the same time and going to see who won, who won the battle. Okay, so a different kind of completely, completely different side of this uh, is represented here by a work uh, by Naftali Bezem. Uh, to the aid of the seamen, this happened in 52 when there was a strike in the port of uh, Haifa. Uh, the strike of the seamen because of the wages. And if you look once again here, it can remind you of huge like murals by Diego Rivera. It can remind you once again of former Soviet Union posters. It's really social realism at its best. And he was part of a group of artists that said art needs to be related to the world. Art isn't about art about art, but rather it's in conversation in the world with the world. Now, actually, New Horizons, because they were such a close group and they were already quite known, they won the battle. So, so much so that studying um, in Bezalel until, I'd say, seven years ago, if you went through uh, your BFA there, you would learn and know everything about New Horizons and you'd never hear his name. He was also not exhibited until the re, kind of, um, the new, uh, the new arrangement of the Israeli permanent collection in both the Israel Museum in Jerusalem and in the Art Museum in Tel Aviv, only in the last two years, these artists started to reappear. And we're gonna see how contemporary art is shifting our understanding of the history. So much so, by the way, that Naftali Bezem, like other artists uh, in that group, left the country and lived outside of Israel, some of them never to return, because they were just so pushed away. Um, we're looking here at a work from when? 1967 by Mordechai Ardon. It's called at the Gates of Jerusalem. Why is that? What happened in 1967? Perfect. So the Six Day War, and depending on your political opinion, it was Jerusalem was unified, freed, or conquered. Okay, that's your, your choice to make. Um, but at that point, um, in Israeli society, 99.9% .9 of the people were in euphoria, right? Because however we look at it today, a 2,000-year-old dream had come true, okay? Uh, and at that time, you can't deny that huge thing. And Mordechai Aldon paints this huge work um, having on the right-hand side... Um, um, you know what, I'll start with the left because it's written. So Mark, it's a little hard to see there, but there's the Aleph and the Sfirot, a very mystical kind of pattern. In the center, you're seeing ladders, right? And ladders traditionally are what connects between heaven and earth, the ability to move, move upwards, the, the bridge. And on the right-hand side, 
uh, rock which resembles the Evan Hashtiyah, the, the, in the mystical Jewish belief, the, the rock that was on um, Temple Mount that is kind of the center of the world and where the world started from. So he paints this in 1967, and it's very much a mystical painting that also gives kind of voice to what people are feeling at that time. And now for something completely different. Um, but also, if you look at the date, 1967, a work by Alto Malkin. For those of you who were here yesterday, he's the same sculptor who did the memorial or the monument in uh, Rabin Square. Um, and this sculpture, first of all, is human size. This is based on his own body. So you stand in front of it. It's exhibited, exhibited currently in the Tel Aviv Museum of Art. Um, which, by the way, I'd say if there are two major sculptures in Israeli art that are like you can't skip them, it's the Nimrod I showed a few slides ago and this one. Um, and what's happening here? If we look at this, you can see, I mean, you can see his boots. We know he's a soldier, but usually we depict soldier not like this, right? But in heroic pose, fully closed, eyes up, right? That would be kind of how we'd depict a soldier. Here we have, he has guns and weapons protruding from his chest. He has a huge bomb in his belly. His heart is either a heart or a grenade, right? And his his body is fully exposed and his tongue is out in a way that all we're seeing is a combination of the horror of wars and ridicule, right? It's not, there's nothing dignified about this. There is no dignity. Now, the name of the sculpture is very, very telling. Uh, it's called He Walked Through the Fields. In Hebrew, Hu Halach Basadot. Now, any Israeli person who went through the school system, any, um, knows this because it's a play we need to study for our, uh, I don't know what you call them here. The, yes, that. Um, it's a play by Moshe Shamil. That title is actually based on a poem by Nathan Alterman. But in the play, he walked through the fields. It's a story, it's actually a love story between Uri, a kibbutz member, and a young woman coming a refugee from the Holocaust. And in that story, he's sent to war. He dies at war. And the play is kind of unclear if he dies a very heroic death or a really, really unnecessary one. Um, so first of all, any Israeli looking at this has also a name for the sculpture. Because whoever knows this play knows it's Uli. Okay? And Igal Tomalkin is kind of making this very harsh comment about the necessity or unnecessity of war. And I want to stop for a moment at this 1967, because this is extremely provocative. It's like, no one, no one is looking at things like that. But it also helps us understand something of the point of view of the art world uh, and how it um, diverts from the mainstream Zionist Israeli narrative. Because remember what we said with New Horizons, how they said that we need to be connected to the international art world. And at that point, the center is in the US. And what do we have in these years happening in the US? Exactly, Vietnam War, the anti-war uh, movement. And so the artists, in a way, have also external eyes. They're looking at the war not only from where it's happening, but also from outside. Um, and, and so that's kind of the effect of it. And the sculpture marks this, uh, I'd say, split between the Israeli art world and the Zionist narrative. Um, 
I want to look at another split in a work from 1975. What, what comes after 1967? So what year? 1973. Now I just want to say, look how amazing collective memory is. Because if I'm in a room with no Jews, okay, and I ask what comes after 1967, what do they say? 1968, because that's logical, right? But, but you can see how, how central that is um, to you and also to anyone growing up in Israel. We, I mean, if we recite 1948, 1952, 1967, 73, 82, and so on, we're saying dates and we have all this information. It's so embedded in who we are. And 1973 creates this huge you know, schasm in Israeli society and in the psyche and, and the drop from the euphoria of 67. And we're looking here at a work by Rafi Lavi, an extremely influential uh, figure in Israeli uh, art. And I'm guessing that if you look at it, that's the point where you're saying, okay, up until now I could handle everything she showed as art. And here I'm like, mm, no, really, really not so much. Like, and anything between my grandchild's son or daughter can do this and probably much better, and I would actually hang it, to why, why is she even calling this art? Um, so I'm not going into the huge question of why this is art, but I want to answer it on a very, very specific level. Because basically, Rafi Lavi, um, who kind of became, in a way, the founder of, of a style called Dalut HaChomer, poverty of matter, said a few things. First of all, we live in Israel. We're not in Italy. We don't have marble. What we have is plywood, cheap materials, and the way we see and experience art is mainly from magazines, pre-internet time, uh, and reproductions. We don't live in, in that world of, of oil paint and all that richness. And art needs to reflect reality by being true to it. And the other thing he says is that post-1973, we can't paint and beautify reality. Artists need to be honest and true and reflect what is and not sugarcoat it. And he starts these works, which are usually plywood, some paint, pencil. It's hard to see because it's relatively small. Some of you on the left-hand side might recognize Golda Meir over there. So snippets from the newspaper. Um, and ends up being extremely influential on the direction of the art world. One of his students, Tamar Getel, from a, um, from a series called Chatzar Tel Chai, and this is another good way to understand Israeli art in a larger context. Chatzar Tel Chai, Tel Chai Courtyard, is a small, now a small town in the north, uh, best known for a war that became a very, not a battle, that became very symbolic in 1920s, uh, in 1920, uh, where only eight, a group of eight people were defending against attacks. Uh, and you might have heard of Josef Trumpeldo, um, who died uh, at that time. He's most famous for saying, it's good to die for our country. Another sentence I grew up on in Israel, okay? That's just to understand uh, like how we grow up. Um, so Tel Chai is kind of a symbol for that until today of that battle. And Tamal Getil does hear a few things. It's hard to see here, but the backdrop is kind of, it's a painting, but it's painted like a blackboard, okay, in the way you teach. And we have here a few combinations. On the top, you can kind of see a very basic window line as you'd see in a kibbutz, right? The most, most basic, stark uh, 
uh, structure. And below, you're seeing a kind of, it's, it, this is a collage, and it's a, a, actually a, a printed version of a painting from the 15th century, uh, The Ideal City, which isn't attrib attributed to anyone specific and exists in three places in the world, uh, but it's considered one of the, the paintings that shows like what the ideal perspective is. And in this painting, she's bringing them together with this huge block of yellow in between them, the distance between them, and kind of asking, what are the foundations? And as an Israeli artist, where do I look, right? Do I look at Western culture and the development of art and Christianity and all of that, which is very, very central to the development of art the way we study it, especially in the Western world? How is that even connected to where we are? How do those two things happen together? And can they even be brought together? So basically, we're here in the mid-70s, and you kind of have now a, a basic understanding of the development of what happened. And I'm skipping now to the 2000s, okay? So we're, we're like taking a leap in our time machine and what we're gonna try and start doing is looking at what's happening in Israeli art from 2000 onwards um, and how it reflects uh, various issues uh, within Israeli society and also we'll be able to refer at some points back to the works we were seeing. Okay, so this is uh, a still, stills from a video by uh, Guy Ben-Nil. What, what does, that dude look like? Who does he look like? Herzl. Herzl, exactly. He's the artist, he just grew his beard for uh, the purpose of this. But once again, notice how powerful collective memory is, right? The fact that he reminds you, and once again, this is Israeli art, anyone in Israel any, like, knows that. And he's sitting in a tree, which a tree is a few things. First of all, it's connection to nature. It's also he's rising up so he can see what's going around. It's this issue of a vision. The thing is that all of this tree is made of pieces from Ikea. <laughs> all of them. In the video, you see him collecting and slowly building his Ikea tree. If you start looking, it becomes clearer. And actually making a comment about the utopian vision of Herzl and a land for the Jews versus consumerism, capitalism, and IKEA, which we all end up uh, going to, me included. Um, we're moving here to a work by Zoya Chilkaski, New Victims. Oh, I didn't put the date. This is actually from 2017. Sorry about that. Um, and Zoya Chilkaski, and she's a good way for us to start diving into internal issues within Jewish Israeli society. Um, she uh, immigrated to Israel in the 90s, 1990s, with the large wave of Jews coming from former Soviet Union, about a million Jews, um, as a teenager, 12 year old, and experienced the whole turmoil of this move and transition. Um, and there's something very interesting about her work in a way that she became a voice for this generation. Um, and this work, which was the opening work in an exhibition that was up last year in the Israel Museum and was actually the most visited ever in the history of the Israel Museum. Uh, the exhibition was called Pravda, which means truth uh, in uh, Russian, and this is what welcomed you. And the name is New Victims, which usually we don't give that name to people coming <laughs> off the plane, right? Making Aliyah, coming to Israel, because we, we call them newcomers or Olim Chadashim, right? Um, but she said that's what her grandma used to say every time she saw them on the news. And Zona Chilkaski um, 
really became a voice looking in a very satirical, harsh, and full of humor way, uh, full of humor about this population and what it was like to grow up. Uh, and in this diptych, uh, you can see kind of uh, what she's talking about. So on the left-hand side, you, you can see it's called school mobbing. Uh, on the left-hand side, we're seeing the kids still in Russia. Can you see him with the glasses and the violin and the big nose? Um, okay, I'll just say, I hope you all p checked your politically correctness at the door, because for sake of learning, um, I'm ignoring anything politically correct. That's just for the sake of learning. Remember to pick it up when you leave, because for sake of conversation and human relations, we need it. Okay, so you can see the Jewish kid with the big nose and glasses and violin. And you can see around him the Russian kids, right? They're kind of pinkish and with blonde hair. And they're basically picking on him. And behind on the fence in Russian, what's written is basically Jews out. Yeah. Okay? And then on the right-hand side, we're seeing the same kid, right? He still looks like a geek, holding his violin, having the glasses. Around him are Israeli kids, Mizrahi kids, okay? Kids that are obviously, they don't look white. Right? They look brown. Um, so uh, we're talking about kids descendant from uh, Arab-speaking countries, Moroccan, Egyptian, uh, whatnot. And on the fence behind, we have two things. Uh, between the kid and the larger kid, what's written there, Russians go back to Russia. Okay? And behind the girl over there, what's written is death to the Arabs. Now, obviously, Obviously, this made quite a mess, <laughs> right? Um, but Zoya is taking a very, very direct look. And Israeli society, Jewish-Israeli society, we have many others. I mentioned it's an immigrant society. If you remember Boris Schatz and Bezalel, it was all Eurocentric, right? And the other in Israeli society uh, tends to be whoever isn't white, male, and what Ashkenazi, I'd say our parallel of white would be Ashkenazi in Israel. And we start seeing how these voices start bringing up all these, all these issues. Um, and I want to talk now about an artist, Vera Nisim, Moroccan descendant. Uh, and one of the first artists that brought to the front the combination of say, both the discrimination against the Moroccan Jews coming to Israel, but also the ties between race and economy. Uh, and I'm going to show you uh, some of her video. One moment. Of this video. That's her. So I'm gonna I'm gonna speak over this. Basically, the woman she's pouring water over and is cleaning this sun made out of cleaning gloves is her mother. Um, her parents appear in most of her works. 
The name of this piece is called If I Tell You the Story of My Life, Tears Will Run From Your Eyes. And it's an, a generation that very often didn't tell their kids, but worked very, very hard to allow them a better life. And her mom was a cleaner all her life to allow her daughter to finish education and then go into art school. Um, and in this very heartbreaking video, Vered uh, Nisim, and this was kind of the video that really, one of the first that brought forward this connection between racial discrimination and socioeconomic uh, um, statuses uh, in Israel. Um, I'll do this. She, the place where she's doing it, I'll just maybe mention that, is in South Tel Aviv. We'll, get, we'll talk of a little more soon about uh, South Tel Aviv. So it's also outdoors. There's something very humiliating about it, right? And her dress is actually all made of floor mops. Okay, so a very, it's really a very, and her daughter on the ladder with the bride, with the bride's dress, a very, it's a video that whether you understand what the mother was saying or singing or not, she was singing a Moroccan Jewish song, which uh, if you heard, it's Asher Bachar Be'amo, the uh, God who cho has chosen his people. Okay, um, so a very, very uh, harsh video, and also the aesthetics are considered very non-Western aesthetics, right? She's playing with that backdrop, the way she's dressed, really embracing what we very often call more Arab um, aesthetics. This one. Okay. So. Um, we're moving to uh, another artist, very young artist, a rising star, Nirit Takele, uh, an Ethiopian young artist, uh, just graduated uh, a, two years ago. And we're seeing here, what is this? It's a stork, is it alive? No, it's not. And a stork in Ethiopian Jewish cultures is the bird that was sent to Jerusalem to then fly back and tell uh, tell the community uh, how Jerusalem is doing. It's a chasida levana levanat makor ufi saprili shlom Yerushalayim. Go and tell me the tales of Jerusalem. And in this painting, she's holding the stork that is dead, kind of symbolizing, once again, if you remember what we said with uh, Zoya Tchelkovsky's work, Russians go back to Russia, the Ethiopians came to Israel and suddenly uh, their Judaism was questioned. Uh, in various ways and the experience of racism and suddenly being black rather than uh, Jewish. Another work by uh, Nirit Takele, and she paints large. Her paintings are huge. A lot of it is about like seeing the power in her community and wanting to give that uh, size. This is called Untitled, The Beating of the Israeli Soldier. Um, in 2015, there was an incident with uh, a young Ethiopian soldier called Damas Picada um, that was by accident filmed by a, a, a camera on the street where basically he was beaten really, really harshly by police with no apparent good reason and that would is what instigated the first Ethiopian protests that were in Israel. Uh, you might notice the similarities in timing to Black Lives Matter or Black and Brown Lives Matter. It's not the same, but there are many parallels and what's happening in the US is affecting a lot of what is happening in Israel and that's why you're seeing parallels. And she paints that, she paints what she sees. And I just wanna mention for a moment, if we think back to New Horizons, right? about 
art being about art rather than art being about reality, we see what's happening now, that art has once again become very, very close in touch with reality, depicting reality, what is observed, but also what is felt and using that observation. Um, let's talk about women a little. Uh, so this is a, a, a these are t-shirts from a performance and installation by artist uh, Einat Amir. Um, you could buy those t-shirts. It's called Men Too. In Hebrew, it was called Men Explain Things to Me. Um, <laughs> and basically, uh, it was a beautiful kind of podium she created with stairs and everything. And she took five uh, very well-known male artists that read that piece to the crowd um, and explained uh, stuff. And each of these t-shirts, it's hard to see it here, uh, but each of these t-shirts have a different statistic of women within the Israeli art world. Uh, we're, we're far less there. Uh, than the men, and also bringing forward that issue. I'm going backwards now to Pamela Levy, who passed in 2014 and was another artist I never learned about, but suddenly resurfaced with a crazy amazing retrospective in the Tel Aviv Museum. And because of what's happening now with identity politics and more awareness to women, she suddenly resurfaced an amazing artist, um, actually uh, originally from Iowa uh, in America, made a move to Israel and became an uh, Israeli. Um, her works are really large and depict uh, mostly women uh, in scenes in, in a time where that was really not what people were doing. Okay, and she kind of re-emerged. Another artist I want to mention is Roi Victoria Hefetz. Um, and uh, I'll refer, <laughs> and I'm doing this on purpose. Remember, I put politically correction out of the door, so I'm going to refer to him as her because that's how she chooses to uh, refer to herself. So uh, Roi now doesn't live in Israel, she lives in uh, Berlin and there she works, but she also uh, exhibits uh, in Israel. Um, and another other is the LGBTQ community with the transgender community being, I'd say, the most vulnerable uh, uh, of that population. Her drawings are huge. I mean, usually you walk into a room, they're all pencil and charcoal, and I'm talking about like 10, 15 feet tall. Like you walk and you're enveloped in them. And a lot of what she deals with is um, women and what we're supposed to look like, and old age and what it will be like, and questions of beauty. And the paintings themselves, because they're so huge, they also always have the marks of the work, right? Because if you're working in pencil and charcoal at that size, you can't, like, you can't uh, hide the artist's uh, hand. I'll just say, um, I think it's quite confusing because Tel Aviv from outside seems as a very, very liberal city where it's really safe to be queer in any way, which is generally true. However, Israel is a very conservative country and traditional country and society. So Tel Aviv is a kind of bubble in that way. In terms of legislation, there's still a lot to where to go and there's quite a lot of discrimination. And also there are like hate crimes and incidents that happen as I mean, if it's in 2016, the murder of Shira Banki and the uh, uh, Pride Parade in Jerusalem, and if it's the murder 10 years ago in the youth, in the gay youth club that is still, they have still yet not found um, the people responsible for that. So it's a tricky, very complex issue because on the one hand, we think of Israel as a safe haven for the queer community in that region. Um, it's, a, it's more complex 
than that. Um, I want to talk for a moment. I'm kind of uh, looking at uh, uh, also at women from another angle. This is a kind of invitation for an exhibition that just closed in Tel Aviv called El Araf. Uh, notice there's no English here, right? It's uh, local. Uh, curated by a Palestinian curator, all Palestinian artists, and very interesting because it's the first all Palestinian show in Tel Aviv that had nothing to do with the conflict. Okay? It was all about internal issues. El Araf is in uh, uh, Islam. It's similar to what we know from Christianity as the pregatory. How do you pronounce it? That. Thank you. I never know how to pronounce it. So it's, it's the parallel of that. And she chose that as the word because it's the in-between place, right? And Palestinians in that way are very much kind of in-between. And I want to look specifically at these two photographs by Amira Zian, a Druze Palestinian. I know that, like, what did she just say? Druze Palestinian, come this evening. Um, um, where she takes photographs of women, but you can see only the action is visible. Right? It's, and she, she plays and looks a lot about it, this issue of women and where they're visible, what part of the society do they take, what space do they take up. Okay. Um, we're looking at uh, still from a video by Elham Rokni, a Jewish Iranian uh, woman. She was born in Iran and at the age of nine she came uh, to Israel. And this is uh, stills from a video called Seven Abdel El Karim. Uh, of a very long project in which she collected stories from refugees from Sudan and Eritrea um, and created a book of, uh, of folk stories and translated them. She collected them in the original language and then translated them to Hebrew and to English, literally creating a book. But then she also used their personal stories with those folk stories to create a crazy weird story that merges between folk stories and what refugees are going through in this video. Okay, so really like touching on the issue of uh, refugees in Israel in a very, um, I'd say subversive way, because what she did, she also partnered with the uh, National Library Archive and that book became part of the archive. So she kind of played within the system. I want to show you a work, a video work by her, a different one. Um, it's called Crossing the Dune. Um, one moment. Full screen? No? Yes? Where's full screen? Can't find full screen. So while we're watching, I'm going to tell you the story uh, of this work. So Elham is in a wheelchair. Um, she had a car accident and a in her early 20s, um, and she's in a wheelchair. And this work was inspired by a time when she went to the beach and her friends put uh, kind of different boards for her to be able to roll down to the sea. She said it actually made it really difficult and m made her kind of think of how sometimes we try to solve problems in the most awkward ways that don't really always make sense. Uh, and then when wanting to touch on that, she kind of took it to a to a different scene. She wanted to remove it uh, from, from what we see when we see a, uh, a wheelchair, right? Because we immediately put that in a box, a disabled uh, person. 
but taking that issue of climbing somewhere, of going somewhere, uh, and, and how that functions and how that works, this is happening in the dunes of Ashdod, outside the city of Ashdod, where she grew up, and the video is just that. He's slowly going uphill with moving the boards in this motion that looks like it, it, it's really not going anywhere. Um, and, a very, and, and the first, I'd say, one of the first things that comes to mind is also Sisyphus, like Thank you. It's the words I learned in Hebrew that are actually not in Hebrew that I don't know how to pronounce in English, if you wondered. Okay, so this is this work. You can see what's happening, right? He's going to be doing that until the top of the hill. If you don't believe me, I can fast forward for you. It just keeps going and going until he disappears um, into, into basically nothing. And, and she's asking here also a question of what is our destination, right? And think of Guy Benel and and Herzl and that utopia once again, and this is kind of really asking that question of, but where are we going? Like, what is all this effort for? Why are we climbing up this hill? And what is this hill? And what is the end of this hill? Okay, another work uh, relating to um, refugees in Israel um, uh, is this work by Asaf Shushan. These are stills from a video work. It's called Taban. Taban is the name of the person in the video, but it also in Arabic means Ayef. Uh, sorry, um, that was Hebrew, tired. <laughs> well, that was Freudian in so many ways. Um, uh, it means tired, thank you. Um, and Asaf Shushan, he doesn't live in Israel uh, anymore. He lives in Paris, but does work uh, in Israel. And relating here to the issues uh, of refugees, he's a refugee from Sudan. He no longer lives in Israel, by the way, this man. Uh, and basically what he did in this video, you see a video of a man running. He's running in the spot, and the sun goes from sunrise to sundown, and he's just running, and it's in real time. Like, the video just runs for 24 hours. Um, this endless running, escaping from, not reaching anywhere, um, and the, this, you know, I mean, this is if, oh, I cannot, thank you, of that. An interesting thing to note is that Asaf um, pays the people that work with him and make sure they know what the movie or the video art is about and shows them the video before it's uh, exhibited to get their approval and permission. And I think it's important because very often when we work or tell the story of an other, right? Uh, what is the agency of that other? And when am I allowed to tell a story of a different person? When is it an appropriation? And when is it trying to be a voice for someone? And that's a very, very tricky uh, issue. We're looking here at a work from 2011 by Ohad Meromi. It's called The Boy from South Tel Aviv. In terms of size, I reach his knee. It's huge, okay? It's, it's uh, in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. I mean, the painting behind him is huge. It's a huge uh, sculpture. Uh, you can see he's black, uh, also uncircumcised. It's very, very clear. Why from South Tel Aviv? Like in many cities, refugees, migrant workers that arrive, they don't go to the affluent places, right? They don't find themselves there. They find themselves in the more difficult neighborhoods, the poorer neighborhoods, and, and very often those neighborhoods are in the south of the city. That's a whole story of gentrification. If there's a body of water, it changes the direction. But generally speaking, southeast Tel Aviv 
are the poorer neighborhoods, and that's where you'll find uh, most of the migrant workers and refugees. And he's putting this boy from South Tel Aviv, which is anonymous in a way, but when you encounter him, you're you, you have to come to terms with his presence, right? In a way that the state of Israel has yet to figure out how do we come um, to terms with uh, this presence. Um, what I wanna do now, I'm gonna show you um, two of my own works. Uh, one, well, and we'll start with one that specifically relates to South Tel Aviv. That's where I uh, have been living for the last decade. Um, and this work, um, is a performance piece uh, I did in collaboration with a colleague and close friend called Maya Sharabani, uh, and it's called Spot. If you think of Spot, uh, Spot is both a spotlight when you light something up, but it's also a stain. And uh, this is in a festival that's happening in South Tel Aviv for the last five years um, uh, during Hanukkah slash Christmas time. Um, and we were very kind of thinking, should we do a work in there or not? Because on the one hand, it's covering up all the issues. I mean, money should be pouring into infrastructure there and social issues there rather than art that makes it seem pretty. Um, so the choice was to do something if we're able to make a comment and something real about the place. So what we did in this work, um, basically, first of all, in terms of the way we're dressed, you can see on our head are like very fancy hats and all, but our skirts are made out of bags and wrappers and uh, stuff like that. And we had a spotlight uh, lighting the post old post office building, non-functioning, crazy dirty. Um, and we were cleaning for three hours within that spot. Now what happens the moment you clean that, you see how dirty the rest is, right? And people were, going by, you can see here all our cleaning uh, materials, and, and basically it was a comment about what's happening there in South Tel Aviv, this neglect uh, in the city, once again a city that very often when we see it from outside, um, it seems this beautiful place, which it is, but when we tour we usually go to the beautiful places, we don't go to the, what Tel Aviv, South Tel Aviv is often referred to as the backyard of uh, the city, where we dump all our problems, okay? Um, so that's the work uh, from there. I'll just say there was a guard around because it's the one neighborhood in Tel Aviv where as a woman, I don't walk through at night. I'd bike there, but um, it's not a place I'd wanna walk through at night. It's the place where most of the crime, drugs, and prostitution uh, happen, um, and the guard was needed, okay? So it's interesting to see the place where art is in friction re with reality and how, how do we as artists choose or not choose to relate to that. Um, the last uh, work I wanna show you, but first talk about the exhibition in general, is, um, is the exhibition currently in uh, Batia Museum of Art under curation of Hilako and Schneidelman, and it's called The Believers. Um, and there are a few very powerful things about that. First of all, if you, know, if you were with me for the last 50 minutes, it's a lot of harsh issues, right? That wasn't a very optimistic lecture. Um, <laughs> however, to me, there's something very optimistic about allowing all of these issues to come to the forefront, to start looking at them, because we can't do or solve anything if we don't look at reality as it is. The other thing I enjoy about it is that art is trying to tackle reality. It's not like staying away from it, but rather looking for a way to be in dialogue in reality. 
with reality. Now, Hilak created a trilogy of exhibitions, the last one being The Believers, really touching on that uh, in a way that is very brave within the very secular Israeli art world and trying to talk about what, what is faith uh, these days and how art plays a role in that. We're seeing the entrance of the museum and installation view with actually three works. On the floor is a work by Lee Tulgerman, young Israeli artist, it, and it's a work that's influenced by many, many traditions and religions, uh, amongst which are also Italian frescoes. But also to see that work, you literally need to go down on your knees and look, right? Because it's on the floor. If you want to see the details, you're down on your knees. It reminds us of Islam, but also in Judaism, there's on Yom Kippur, that one point where we go down on the knees, and it's complete surrender, right? It's, it's, it's like, agreeing to gravity. Then we have on the left-hand side those uh, white poles. They're made of clay. It's kind of hard to see. They're, they remind us more of totems, right? Um, and on the wall behind us is a series of six works, which is actually one by Moshe Gershoni, a very prominent Israeli artist. The last panel, it talks about faith, uh, faith and love and says at the end that the most important aspect is love. Um, I'm showing you... One image from my work currently uh, exhibiting uh, over there, it's an installation, and it's made out of three main uh, pieces. So you see the ladders behind. Uh, it is, I am highly influenced by Mordechai Aldon. Uh, I love his paintings. It was very untrendy, um, but <laughs> I do love his paintings. And the ladders, uh, they reach from this point of view. You can see you can't see their end because they go with the architecture all the way to the ceiling. They're very, very thin. You can't really climb them. They're almost like a kid would draw ladders, so they're completely impractical. And actually, these ladders reflect, there are five ladders. They each reflect the relationship with one of my siblings. So for me, this is the most personal <laughs> exhibition uh, until now. Then on the floor, you can see those red, I call them red islands, they're red velvet with the gold around, same as you'd see in a synagogue or in a theater, two places where you need a leap, uh, 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 you know, um, leap of faith, right, uh, to, to actually enjoy what's going on. Um, and people can sit on them. And then the moment, once again, you have, you can kind of go with gravity, sit down, and suddenly what opens are the ladders and you can see all the way up. And in the middle, what you're seeing are structures that are anything between architectural structures gone wrong, clouds, kites, uh, these bird-like uh, um, bird -like creatures that could remind us also a little of vitrage and the, light, the glass windows and the light is going through them. Um, this is a way to see one of them from close up. All of this is made of white glue by the way. Um, it's a technique I developed, and for those of you who want, I brought a few pieces so you can see how I make that. But I want to I, I wanna read the last piece for, of what Hila wrote in the text. Um, this trilogy stems from a political, economic, and social climate where more than ever, and perhaps just as always, one must have great faith in order to create and present art. Um, to me, that's very, very powerful because very often in the face of what's happening in the world, it's almost an audacity to go into the studio and make art. And it's trying to think, what, why are we even doing that? Hopefully, we saw through this lecture that it allows windows into issues that very often we won't see in any place that is governed by consumerism or political um, 
interests. Okay, so we have five minutes for questions, if any of you have questions. Yeah. I'm very intrigued with that piece. Was that a vision you had in your mind, or did you have a concept and start? Did it build on itself? How did that come about? Um, so, um, yes. Um, what's your name, sir? Michael asked uh, about the process of creating this piece, if I had a vision uh, and how it came through, or it, did it just happen, what's the process? So um, it kind of happened in a few parallel ways. Uh, the white glue is a material I've been working with in my exhibition last year, featured that too, and kind of playing with that in architecture. The ladders happened once uh, the curator took me to see the space she wants me to work in, and I saw the architecture, and it kind of sprang to my mind and then usually what I do I create a model to scale of the place uh, and, and then I work I don't draw I first sculpt tiny and that's how I figure out stuff and what happens to me very often in my works they're series of five or six or eight because I'm one of six kids so five are my siblings six so all of us eight are all of us all of us with my parents, and it's it's in, it's not intentional. It took me a few years to realize that. And as I was building the tiny ladders, I then ended up with five ladders, tiny ladders, uh, and I was tracing them so I could take the measurements. And then it became very clear to me which is which relationship. Like that just happened. It wasn't on purpose. It, it ended up being like crazy installing them. Um, and, and then the, the red islands, I actually dreamt of them, and I learned with time that if I dream of a sculpture, I need to put my mind on hold, go and do it quickly before my mind interferes, um, and then see what happens. Um, it's like a race against time, but with me it's a race against my mind. Um, and, and I dreamt of them. And then, and then, so it builds kind of in two parallel ways, where one is like, I kind of know what I'm doing, and the other one is, what is the feeling I want people to have in the space? So. so your inspiration comes in shapes and concepts and Yes. Look, the whole thing with the white blue, one moment. So this is all white glue, which is mixed into with pigments and ink, uh, and I uh, pour on um, vinyl, which has texture, and then I can peel uh, off. To create these structures, I need you can't like make these and then stick them because if you stick them, it melts the glue. That can't work. To create these, you need to like put all the sticks down and pour it, wait for it to dry, then you can start folding, and then you can do the next part. Um, and it stems from architecture and translation from between 2D and, and 3D. But this, and you can see some of them are more transparent than others, so the light plays with them very, uh, very beautifully. Um, and this is a good example for how I work because it happened by accident. I was in an artist resi residency in Maine, uh, and I had a huge hangar um, so for, as my studio, so I decided to make an experiment and to teach where I make my art. 
which is a very intense thing, but it was huge. And then one of the kids during one of the lessons just knocked over a gallon of white glue by mistake on a vinyl piece, but I had so much space, which I'm not used to in Israel, but hey, it's Maine. Um, so I said, okay, we're not stopping class to fix this up now. Let's just move a little over there and continue. So that gallon of glue was on that vinyl. And since once again, I had so much space, I said, oh, I wonder what happens there. So I just let it be. And then pieces of it dried at different stages and it became interesting. So I mailed, like real mail, not this mail, um, pieces of that back to myself in Israel. I wasn't there at the time, but I mailed it so that when I got back to my studio, I'd have that and I can start researching. So it was a three-year research of material uh, to figure this out. And maybe I can just show you and we'll do that while we're getting the, the next question, okay? So that we have time for another question. No, that's for this evening, not for now. Um, well, while you're looking, so if anybody's going to Israel, knows who's going to hire Shirelle, you should know. She doesn't have any more time. No, I'll, I, if it's you guys, just tell me your CSP and I'll have time. Yeah, I was like, hey, I'm here. <laughs> um, so this is my previous exhibition. So you can see kind of where these structures started from um, and how the glue functions in, uh, in various ways. So all of these over there. And there you can also see more of the architectural uh, influence. OK, you had a question. Yeah, I had many questions as you went along, but they sort of, it was a wonderful presentation. Thank you. So Betalel. Um, so the question was about Betalel, the art academy, and what is the atmosphere that it kind of uh, creates or sustains, which is uh, a fascinating question. Um, it, first of all, it depends who you ask, right? There are eight different departments. There are thousands of students that go through that place. Uh, and each department is very, very different. And I can speak about the fine arts department, right? Because that's where I studied. Um, and uh, for some people, it's good. For many people, it's extremely traumatic. It took me about a decade to heal. Um, <laughs> In what way? Uh, it, there's, I'd say um, there's a very specific understanding of what is a su successful artist in the Betalel way. You need to have a very, and, and I'll say this, it is changing. So when I decided to, alongside my practice, do theoretical studies, I did an MA in philosophy uh, of art, um, I was told by the artist I asked the recommendation, recommendation letter to receive a scholarship who basically said in the letter, 
she can do whatever she wants, but she's supposed to be in the studio. Um, and, and people told me, you can't do both theory and be an artist. Now, it changed in a way that, like, four years ago, I was, I'm, I'm invited to Betzalel, like, to the crits and to uh, take part in that and to talk about other options once you graduate your first degree. So there is a change. But I'm also told I can't talk about art and be an artist. And I can't sell other people's art and be an artist. And I can't, and I can't, and I can't, and I can't. I, it, with time, I understand I don't need to listen. Um, <laughs> but when, when you're trained in such an environment, uh, it has a huge effect. Um, and I still ask myself until today, what is, what is it for me to be a successful artist? Right? Because there is a very specific trajectory. The fact that this is in a very good gallery in Tel Aviv, the fact that I'm exhibiting now in a museum under a well-known curator, I can't deny the fact that that's important for my career and important to me. But as an environment, I'll say, when I had tiny thoughts about going to the Betzalel MFA, the one thing I asked my friends that were studying there, I asked, is this a generous environment? And they didn't hesitate. The answer was no before I ended the question. <laughs> which is very harsh. Um, I can say that I'm slowly creating a community around me of people who I believe are generous and genuine and that does exist, but I wouldn't say that that system fosters that. So, so are, are you saying that within, they're sort of within the box and would rubber stamp the phrase that you would? I don't want to be so like, um, yeah. Yeah, Ari gets to decide. Someone has to get back to work, and that's me. <laughs> on, your, on your second slide, the uh, definition of what Bizem was, mm -hmm. uh, the last statement is integrating with the local culture. What mm. happened to that? What happened to that? Integrated I, with the local culture of the land of Israel. That didn't seem to participate in what the uh, school did. So I'll say two things. First of all, I want to be very clear. This is a, I could have a whole presentation about contemporary Israeli art with none of the slides we, we've seen, and it would still be Israeli contemporary art, right? <coughs> like, let's be very clear. This is kind of looking at very specific issues uh, and very specific artists. So this isn't everything about Israeli art. It's, it's, a it's using the art as a window. I will say that to me, it actually does follow that because if you think of, um, well, I focus today at this lecture more on the people than the land, but it's totally connected to locality. What we were seeing is, is all the people of the place. Um, we will this evening, or I will this evening, be talking about the connection to the land, the earth, the Eretz, the, the physical space, and today was definitely now focused on the people, but I actually think it's, it's closely connected to locality. Uh, but also, you know, it's uh, his vision of Eurocentric and Jewish crafts has also been changed with times, and, and things do change. I'm happy about this change, but, uh, but uh, it's, it's a change, whether we prefer it or not, the way someone establishes a place isn't always the way it goes a hundred and something years later. Yeah, on, on your first um, installation, the, the spot. Uh, mm -hmm. you, performance. The performance, right. You 
indicated that the guard was necessary. But was he part of the installation? No, he, he wasn't. No, no, that's a, that's a beautiful question. I think with performance art, which is yeah. probably one of the most confusing art mediums, because it's we're a fine artist, but we're doing stuff that looks like theater, and we might be doing some movement, but we're fine artists, and like, what's going on? Is is yeah? It's a confusing form of art, and that's a, such a valid question. He wasn't part of the art. He was there literally guarding, but I love the fact that he was in the photo because I also don't want the photos look with performance art. Very often what's left is just, just the documentation. That's all there is. And I can have very, very, very clean photos with no one else inside, but that's not the reality, and that's why I had him in this photo. Okay, Phyllis, last question. Uh, you mentioned in one of the... Uh, the uh, Moroccan woman uh, cleaning the floors, um, that it is more for the Arab aesthetic. What is that uh. in relation to the non-Arab? Okay, the yes. Um, uh, the question was, I mentioned uh, the Arab aesthetic or the Mizrahi aesthetic as different from the Western. Uh, Mizrahi, you didn't yeah, yeah, but I said also the Arab because when we say Mizrahi, we are talking about Jews that are descendant of Arab countries, and that's a specific aesthetic, um, and different from uh, the Western aesthetics. So I want to show you um, one moment because I think the visual will answer that even better. Okay, so look at this for instance. This is usually what not something you'd see as a Western arrangement of flowers. Right? These are, it's things that I think in art it's fascinating because we don't think of them, but if you go around your houses or you go to events, there's a way you arrange the flowers, right? You don't think that it's Western. But then if you start traveling, you realize that there are many ways to arrange flowers and they can look like this. Now because Western culture has ruled so much of the art world and including the Israeli uh, system, Vered Nisim bringing in this type of aesthetics was uh, a pretty amazing thing. For instance, we're seeing, huh? one moment, you can see here some of the images. Uh, here she's using, I don't know if you recognize this, please open, thank you. I don't know if you recognize this, these are rug beaters, okay? Um, and with the plastic flowers on them and also bringing up questions of what is high and what is low culture. What materials do we consider to be fine arts and what do we push aside as something low? So that's what I meant about a specific type of aesthetics. We're running over time and Ari has work. Yeah, we will. Otherwise I just stay with you.